Welcome back, everyone, to the Sound Logic Podcast. We're so glad that you're with us. We're cruising through the 60s here now. We've made it to album number 63, which is Asia by Steely Dan. I almost feel like I should sing that just to uh, mimic the uh, the track that actually uses that AJA word. But Asia, I believe, is the correct pronunciation. When we were coming up to this album, I, I had a feeling, as we have sometimes before, that I really wanted to have a special guest because this is such a unique album. Uh, and so I reached out to, uh, I'll give just a little bit more background. A lot of my introduction to jazz has been through the Jazz Station in Toronto, 91.1. And some of my first introduction to music from this album was from the same station. So I emailed the musical director, Brad Barker, took a shot in the dark. He was so kind to get back to me and ask permission from a friend of his to join us. So we are so delighted to have a musician, author, composer, multi-instrumentalist uh, Don Breitup to join us here today. Don, thank you so much for joining us. Guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's great. Don was uh, more than willing to, to come on board and talk about this awesome album. Uh, Don, we wanted to give you just an opportunity when people meet you at a gig or on the street how do you introduce yourself today what do you say uh defines who you are and what you do because you've done a lot of different things over the years yeah i, I have a, a foot high business card <laughs> <laughs> um it sort of depends what hat i'm wearing at the time and what seems most relevant to the person i'm talking to i mean i'm a singer songwriter my band monkey house is a signed you know recording artist but i also do a lot of arranging outside production write books, uh, teach, you, you name it. I will say that uh, uh, you said we're cruising through the 60s now. <laughs> we're solidly in the 70s with this album, right? That's right. Yeah, no, album number 63 on Rolling Stone's list of the oh, greatest well, albums of all time. Oh, I got you, those 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Not the 1960s. No, 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 no. We're, okay. we're in the right decade. A moment of panic, maybe, where you're like, oh, shoot, I agreed for the wrong album. <laughs> 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 no, and I'm really happy to be here. In fact, um, you could wake me up at any hour and say, hey, do you want to nerd out about Steely Dan for an hour? I'd say yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, and the, one of the, we'll get into this, but one of the reasons we or that Brad suggested Don is because Don not only is into this, but has written a book on this album, which we'll come into uh, as we get a little bit into this uh, interview and review. Um, Don, you uh, you sing and play keyboards in, in your band mostly, right? You you play other instruments as well? Well, I actually started as a drummer, but that's a long time ago. But yeah, okay. I'm a keyboard player, songwriter, singer in a group called Monkey House. And you also, you said you were just gigging the other day in your horn band. Uh, do, you, do you play a wind instrument as well, or are you, you playing keys no, in that band? I don't. No, no, I don't. I'm not a horn player. Uh, thank God. Too much practice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I actually started a band just as a labor of love, uh, co-founded with a trumpet player in Toronto named Tony Carlucci, this band called Brass Transit, which just plays Chicago vintage Chicago stuff, so it's an nice. eight piece with with three horns, 
uh, like Chicago. And um, it kind of took off. We ended up getting a U.S. agent, and now we do probably 80 to 90 percent of our gigs stateside, and they're, they're kind of usually fly-ins for in some somewhere in the continental U.S., to uh, soft seat theater and uh, people come out because, as I like to say, we have 30 hits. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah. great. Well, Don, thank you so much for, for sharing a little bit yeah. about yourself. Um, we're so delighted to have you here. But the reason we're here is because of Asia. And Ben, you're right. We'll talk about the pronunciation. I think it throws off anybody who hasn't heard the album. <laughs> but as soon as you listen to the title track, uh, you can hear how to pronounce that. So I'm going to give us some details, general details on the album, and then we'll we'll launch into discussion with Don. And Don, feel free to jump in any point on these notes if you feel you have something to add or correct. Okay. Details, 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 details. Asia was released September 23rd, 1977. Yes, we are in the 70s. This was the sixth studio album by Steely Dan. All songs written by uh, the two members the two founding members and main members of Steely Dan that's uh, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker this album was commercially successful and is considered at least by these numbers as their most commercially successful album went to number five in the UK and number three on the US charts today certified at uh, two times platinum in the US so that's two million and beyond that if you go outside of the US a couple just brief notes on the production of this. Uh, Steely Dan's a unique act, if you're not familiar with them, where it's the two main guys and most of their albums are all uh, complemented by session musicians. This album, almost 40 musicians uh, on top of the two Amazing. main guys, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. They wanted to move into something uh, longer tracks, more sophisticated compositions, which certainly is the case. Uh, and now I'm just glancing through, and I'm not an expert on all some of the big names in jazz and and rock but just looking through the list some names that jumped out to me that i was familiar with wayne shorter on saxophone steve gadd on drums michael mcdonald of course a vocalist um joe sample on keys uh, i believe clavinet specifically and lee rittenauer on guitar and those are just the names that i was familiar with i'm sure many other the names the people are household names in the uh the session world uh, there are three singles from the album Peg, Deacon Blues, and Josie, uh, which is impressive because there's only seven tracks on the album. <laughs> uh, in in July 78, at the uh, 1977 Grammys, Asia won the Grammy Award for Best Engineered Recording Non-Classical and got nominations for Album of the Year and Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocals. So it was critically acclaimed at that time. In 2010, was selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry in the U.S. And a lot of people ask about the name, and uh, maybe you can add something here, but uh, Don, but Donald Fagan has said the album was named for a Korean woman who married the brother of a high school friend. So kind of a, <laughs> kind of a chain there through there uh, of why he chose the name. I don't have a lot more information than that. Okay, I, okay. I've never heard uh, Fagan or Becker say much more than that in an interview about the about the title. Right. I think we'll come back to some of those details as we talk about your experience uh, writing the book, Don. But I wanted to touch briefly before we branch into that on on the album cover, which is such a unique. Uh, we always talk about the cover because there's such a big part of 
what makes an album and how we remember albums, I think, especially some of the iconic artwork from the 60s and 70s. Uh, this one is one that um, is so unique. It's almost totally black, but a stripe down the middle, red and white, which is actually part of the clothing that the model is wearing. This is uh, a famous Japanese uh, supermodel uh, from the 70s, Sayoko Yamaguchi. And she you can see just a little bit of her face and this robe she is wearing and yeah, then, with the, with the uh, sort of red and white sash mm-hmm. yeah. and uh in the top right corner in red it's the the name of the album asia and it's a very stylized kind of script font i felt that the sash was uh mimicking the j or vice versa in the in the album name yeah and i think i think they probably got a spot color from the uh from the photo from the red sash to right. to pop into that spot in the album design you know there's an urban myth that uh, phil the late phil hartman designed this album cover because he used to do that kind of thing really oh, and wow. it, it turns out it's not true but it's <laughs> one of those things that i mean i've read it dozens of times and there's no truth to it whatsoever but <laughs> anyway it's a great it's a great simple album cover and i remember um ben you said it was september 23rd 77 when this album came out and uh I was working at my first part-time job in a record store, age 16 at the time, and I was already an absolute Steely Dan freak. And I remember <laughs> taking the box cutter and opening that Tuesday's shipment or whatever day of the week it was, and opening the box, and there was the new Steely Dan record. It was like heavenly light was pouring out of the box. <laughs> a little did I know, my all-time favorite album. Wow. But I ran home with it and played it about six times in a row that day. Wow, I wish they had that uh, Phil Hartman connection. Give us a little extra Canadian content for this uh, this list that we're going through. Yeah. Um, Wow, that's so interesting. I imagine with the primarily black cover that it was uh, it was quite a spectacle to pull out uh, a stack of these brand new. You get the like the sheen of the all black cover before it had any fingerprints on it. uh, You know, through the cellophane. I bet it was a, a really pretty LP to behold. If it had been a little more black, it would have been a Spinal Tap. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Kind of a pastel black. (laughs) Um, uh, Don, I was hoping that you'd have some stories like that. We, you know, a lot of the albums we talk about, even with big fans, uh, Ben and I included, they came out before we were even born in some cases. So this is another one of those cases for us where we're so delighted to have people who who were there when it came out and were in love with it right away. Um, so I, that kind of leads me to the next kind of s- series of questions I have for you. So you've already answered it, sort of. You were already a big Steely Dan, so do you remember your first introduction to the band? Yeah, I've got another sort of epiphany moment. Um, <laughs> by, by age 12, when their uh, first album came out, Can't Buy a Thrill, I was uh, already playing the drums and lifting things on the piano by ear, and you know that was during the five minutes in history when uh, piano was actually cool. <laughs> you know, with, uh, Elton John and Billy Joel yep. and yeah, you yeah, know yeah. Uh, Robert Lamb, and there were a lot of sort of uh, pop auteurs who who were piano players, um, and so. I was just primed for it, and I used to ride around in those days with on my little CCM bike from Canadian Tire, uh, 
and I would put the transistor radio in the basket in the front so I could just, it was sort of early form of Walkman nice. so I could have music on the move kind of thing. Awesome. And I actually have a specific memory of the first time I heard Reeling in the Years by Steely Dan. It came on the radio and it, it, it just immediately went right through to my spine and and i pulled the bike over because i didn't want any background noise and sat on the curb <laughs> listening to that track oh, wow radio, you know so it really was sort of a little bit being struck by musical lightning wow oh man that's, that's so yes i remember <laughs> yeah <laughs> that and that's amazing um and so that you know you're a fan it leads you through they release a lot of music in that five-year span and then we come to asia you fall in love with it i guess we have to jump forward a number of years to then you write a book about it you're you're into your musical career you've done a lot of things uh i'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about how that came to be because as we talked a bit off air and i i saw the list this is part of a series um the book so it why don't you tell us a bit about that series and how you came to be a part of that project? Being a, a little pop rock soul kind of nerd person anyway, I was uh, excited when that, that book series started, 33 and a third. And uh, they would do, it's basically they do one volume of the series per album. And they, you know, they take pictures from journalists and musicians. And uh, I mean, the Bowie one was written by a, a filmmaker and you know, whoever comes up with a good pitch for them, they, they, they'll put the album mm. in the series. Um, but after a couple of rounds, they put out maybe five or six at a time in little batches. So they'd done a couple of rounds of them at that point, maybe more, maybe four or five rounds. And uh, I'm such a Steely Dan agitator that I basically wrote uh, a letter to the series editor in New York and said, hey, David, uh, What's the matter with you guys? How, how come you haven't done a Steely Dan one yet? <laughs> <laughs> Total stranger giving him shit for, for his editorial choices. And he actually, rather than just saying, well, screw this guy and throwing it in the garbage can, he, he um, got in touch with me and said, well, it sounds like you know something about this band. Why don't you pitch me a Steely Dan book and we'll, we'll see. And so I did and, and he okayed it. Uh, and as soon as that happened, my main mission was, can I talk to Donald Fagan or Becker directly or the two of them in the same room? I, I was ready, you know, to uh, move heaven and earth to get an in-person interview. <laughs> and uh, it's, Becker was a little bit out of the picture at that point. He was living in Hawaii and was... Um, almost phobically not doing any press. So I thought I'll concentrate on Fagan. Um, and I just badgered uh, Irving Azoff's office for months. This poor uh, assistant that I got a hold of just couldn't get rid of me. And I kept saying, <laughs> I'm not going to ask any asshole questions like, how did you guys meet? And what do you write first, the music or the words or any of that stuff? <laughs> stuff that I can get from Wikipedia. Yeah, exactly, right. Uh, so I said I want to talk about the nuts and bolts of making the record and I want to talk about chord changes and sidemen and arranging and, you know, all the stuff I figured he'd want to talk about. And so finally it got okayed and I uh, had an interview with him one afternoon in New York in his writing studio on Madison Avenue. And uh, they booked an hour and um, 
he was very welcoming and I guess was enjoying the conversation because we went most of the afternoon. Wow. And I came away with this little digital uh, voice recorder thinking, there is, it's proof I had a conversation with Donna Fagan. <laughs> That's that's amazing. Even if nothing ever came from the book, right? You had uh, a little keepsake to, to hold on to. Yeah. <laughs> digital souvenir yeah and that that book series it has not slowed down i mean they're they're well into the hundreds of volumes now and the publisher is now bloomsbury which is in the uk and they okay. do they do a nice mix of um r&b rock old stuff relatively recent stuff and they don't seem to have any um restrictions as far as how many copies a record has sold hmm. you know it's everything from multi-million sellers to kind of indie obscure fan favorites and stuff like that somebody so. has an interest in an album they pitch it and then they they review it yeah if it's yeah, if they seem awesome. like the right person to write about it they they okay it and um you know the, the great advantage of of writing a little niche title about uh, a pop record that's part of a series is it it stays in print yeah right. you know yeah because the whole series is still available as long as it makes sense so the books from 2007 i think the sales other than the first uh quarter maybe that it was out the sales of the book have been uh, steady wow. ever since huh. awesome that's so fascinating uh, and such a sweet spot for us too to have uh, a treasure trove of people making lists about their favorite music essentially <laughs> um our, right. it's been funny how our, our paths have crossed um i guess with uh Brad Efford at first, who has a project called the RS 500. He wrote an essay, or he and his friends essentially wrote an essay about every album on this list. And then um, we were introduced to uh, a podcast trying to tell the history of rock music in 500 songs. Um, so to have another piece here now of that, uh, that sort of list-making compilation fandom is, uh, is really exciting. And and there's lots of parallels with the albums that we've looked at so far, just skimming through the list of these these little books. It's pretty neat. Yeah. yeah. Usually, if, if we're to have a, a guest on an author, I, I mean, I would write, I would read the book. Um, unfortunately, we just found out about you and, and <laughs> heard from Brad like like a week ago. And I was like, can I get my hands on this book? And then I saw there was like 200 books. And I was like, <laughs> yikes! Um, and, and, and I couldn't believe, as you said, uh, Don, how many of the albums that we've either already reviewed or are going to review are, are in that book series, yeah. 33 and a Third. So I uh, will definitely want to check them out. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly want to apologize for not having read your, your book yet. <laughs> oh, no worries. No found worries. out about it. Um, uh, I normally get would. around to it, I think you'll enjoy it. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's lots of good uh, juicy behind-the-scenes type stuff in it. Yeah, maybe we need to record with uh, someone from the series too to talk about how that project continues and keeps going. That'd be really fun as well. Yeah, and an editor or something. Yeah, Um, I did want to say that uh, you know you alluded to the fact that Asia is uh, uh, the two principals, Becker and Fagan, plus this kind of army of studio musicians. Yeah, and they they were not always that. I mean, when they okay. I think when they got signed to, to ABC Dunhill in the early 70s, um, I think Becker and Fagan were always the two so-called royalty performers. In other words, they, as far as the label's concerned, they were the band. But they they were uh, at times a five and a six piece okay. you know, band with a steady roster that included um, 
people like Jeff Skunk Baxter, who later went to the Doobie Brothers, and uh, actually Mike McDonald, uh, for one record, I think, was an official band member. But uh, as I say in the book, uh, around uh, the Royal Scam, which is the one before Asia, yep. they just sort of pulled the plug on the whole rock band infrastructure, a bit like the Beatles did after Revolver, and said, we're not touring we make records this is what we do yeah. and we want to be able to use whoever we want to use to to get what we're looking for and they're they're kind of um tentative first steps into making a whole record that way was the royal scam and then by asia it was just that's just how they did it wow. right and they you know they would uh really go deep like um cut the same track with three different rhythm sections and pick their favorite uh, bed track and then wow. you know bring multiple people in to uh, play the guitar solo and pick their favorite out of that and so I actually asked um, uh, Fagan about uh, a, a track that Steve Kahn had played on on the record and he sort of pled the fifth and said you know there were so many overdubs on Asia that I personally lost track of who was on what track? Oh, wow! You know, there's there's the issue of who played on what track, but then there's the the other issue of who actually made it onto the mix that that's on the final record, right? You know, and so he said at a certain point they all became dependent on engineers and assistant engineers to to update the track sheet in pencil every time something new happened, and then they would have a way of determining who was on what track. I think there still is uh, one mistake in the liner notes uh that i've been able to determine so <laughs> wow i know we we've got lots of stories of albums where people have uh fought to get their credit that they deserve but what a what a mess to just organize to keep it all straight and organize it yeah. as well wow right so you know the the steely dan album would drop and you'd have all these musicians all over los angeles saying is that me? <laughs> that's me. The third saxophone yeah. on the back of this track. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. Yeah. Did they put it on or not? Um, and and that leads me to, to one of my questions. Uh, it's noted that Walter Becker didn't perform on a couple of the tracks. Is that? Do you know anything about that? Did and I have written down which ones. Um, uh, Black Cow and, and Peg, which Peg is the, probably the the biggest single. Uh, from the album, or at least pretty pretty well known, was that something that he did record, but then they decided not to use it, or was that a, a choice that happened in the studio? Do you know anything about that, Don? It could well be that that he was on all the tracks, and and they just you know preferred and uh, other other bassists or other guitar players right. on certain tracks. But I, I think by then their attitude toward it had evolved to the point where it didn't really matter to them in the end whether Walter Becker was taking a solo or, or playing bass on a track or whether Fagan was playing Rhodes or, or whatever on a track as long as they loved the end result. Yeah, I mean, yeah. to, to them, the, the sort of the core activity was um, songwriting slash production and they would bring in whatever uh, personnel they, they needed for it. Becker is certainly a uh, uh, very capable guitar player yeah. and oh, really yeah. moving bass player as well. So their standards were high even for themselves. You know. 
I really got that sense listening to it and reading about it that the main guys, especially Becker, but both of them, really taking a production role. Not to say they weren't involved in, in playing the parts, but, but really viewing it as... And that's refreshing because there's so much ego in music, uh, especially rock. And I got the sense that these guys, and you could probably comment more on this, these guys were able to step back and go, no, this is what we want. It doesn't matter if I'm on the track or not. Um, although Donald Fagan is is very prominent, obviously, with the lead vocal and keys on most of them. He's, I felt like Walter Becker was taking more of a bit of a side view of it and viewing it like that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, um, Fagan played a lot of keys, but he's not necessarily the main piano player. There's a lot okay. of Victor Feldman and Joe Sample playing Rhodes and piano and, and that kind of thing. And he, right. I think he really did uh, step back and say, let's just make it as good as it can be. And I've talked to a couple of people in reference to those guys who, who the common theme is that they seem to have in their head right from the, the tracking date to the end exactly how they wanted it to sound. And, you know, sometimes people would be doing two dozen takes for them going, I think it's perfect. What is it they're looking for? But they did they did have this kind of audio ideal in their head mm-hmm. for what, what the groove was supposed to be and what the mix was supposed to be, and they, they just weren't happy until they, they got it there. It, it feels somewhat modern, I guess, for a band in the 70s to go about creating an album this way. Like, we assume now that big, big stars are going to layer everything and, and um, rely heavily on the production side of things. Uh, sometimes even not touring specific material because they can't do it physically right anymore. And, uh, and I guess that's their story a little bit as well that started out as a touring band, but got enough credibility to just say, we're going to, we're going to pour ourselves into the studio and that will be what we do. I know they, I think they went back on the road later in their careers, but Yes, much later. But you just said that you can't you can't sort of pull the plug on on regular uh, rock star activities and have your record label be okay with it. Maybe until you're on your sixth album and you have a big following <laughs> and you've you know right. you've done yeah. at least gold every time out and they they have some faith in your methodology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, any more than the Beatles could have told EMI that on the second record that we're not going to do live dates anymore. yeah right yeah yeah it's and i don't know maybe maybe streaming is once again kind of making that question come more to the forefront as well too as artists get less royalties for for what they do um i've been i've been sort of getting a little bit nerdy about uh, wolfpack uh, a band that still even after several successful albums has no label and they kind of through the digital age have decided when and if or if at all they tour um they just do a a really good job of creating digital content and uh and sort of just keep dangling themselves out in front of people to keep their fans (laughs) kind of starving for more material and uh yeah i don't know It, it raises lots of good questions i think about why we do the things we do and how the industry kind of acts as puppet master sometimes but to have this album in the late 70s kind of already thinking outside the box is, is really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the necessity of a label is certainly debatable at this point if, if a band already has a following. I mean, yeah. that was the whole point of, uh, of uh, Radiohead in whatever year that was, 07, doing in Rainbows. As soon as they were out of their EMI deal, they said, well, 
look what we can do. Yeah. yeah. Here you go, everyone. Yeah. Here. Here. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to self-release. The fans decide what to pay. And, yeah. and they, you know, everything worked out great. Yeah. Uh, but again, you've got to be super established before yeah. you start, yes. yeah. you know, changing the paradigm. Yeah. On that vein, was this the first album where Steely Dan had a manager? I think I read that they were happy to go through their career without having a manager. And then someone uh, approached them and said, we want to promote this better. We want to give you a manager. Is it? Well, I think the I think the Asia era is when they got involved with Irving Azoff, who who was already managing, among others, the Eagles uh, and a bunch of other sort of Southern California household name level uh, rock acts. Um, right. So, and and I, I think he probably took them to the next level. Uh, you know, eventually got them out of their ABC deal, uh, got them big money to go over to Warner's probably ushered in their their platinum era uh just through uh through force of will he's one of those guys who could do that i mean they certainly couldn't have gotten to where they were at that point without you know loyal people at at abc and and some kind of uh cadre of uh promoters and all the infrastructure was there but i'm actually sort of coming to that thought for the first time had they really never had a manager up to that point that would be rare too in that era there's one quote and i mean i don't know where this is from i don't have the reference but that fagan said at the time we were ready to go blissfully through life without a manager um oh. and i don't know if that's right at that album or or a couple before but but i think uh their their producer gary katz kind of encouraged them um around the time of the release of the album to meet with with azov to kind of say you know he, this this guy could really help <laughs> Um, get this out there and they were just happy to I think or my gleaning from it they were happy to create the music they loved right I think that the the less they had to dirty their hands with the, the business side of things the happier they were yeah. and, and really they, you know the, the vibe I got from Fagan talking to him was it wasn't like they would put out an album and, and think you know I hope this has three number ones on it and uh, it's our biggest album to date all they wanted to know was that it would do well enough that the label would let them do it again <laughs> yeah, really. They just yeah. love making records, yeah. and that—that that was the main priority. You know, unless it's a total bomb, they're going to let us make another record. Uh, it's funny. Ben and I were. Uh, ben lives in in Pennsylvania. I'm here in in Ontario. But in last summer, Ben, you came up uh, for a few days, and we uh, did a bit of a driving tour around town. And we were talking about that this album was coming up. And Ben said to me, "Do I know any?" Sealy Dan songs? Like, are there any that I would even know? Uh, because he hadn't listened to the album. I don't think I'd listened to the album yet, although I knew a lot of the tracks. And I started listening uh, different tracks that he might have heard, and going through mostly stuff from Can't Buy a Thrill. Right. But then going through, and every one, Ben was like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I know that, and knew every one. So my, and I think Ben would have a similar experience, my first exposure to Sealy Dan was on rock radio, uh, Q107. Um, in Toronto, and most of that stuff was from I Can't Buy a Thrill, uh, which is much more their debut album, which is way more rocky sounding, has some of those technical jazz elements. But then when you move through to this album, as I said before, I first started hearing tracks from this album on the jazz station in Toronto. I think Peg right. was the first one I heard, and I was like, that sounds like Steely Dan. 
and then they said oh, it was pegged by steely dan and i'm and i heard i'm like and that's my that's got to be michael mcdonald like it has to be him oh yeah singing Ooh. background <laughs> yeah oh and i was like what is happening <laughs> like what is going on and then i started looking into it listen to the album it is so in your face that this is very much a jazz or at least jazzy album but like it to me it's a jazz album like it's not but it is um and i don't know to someone who's not really an expert i don't know how else to describe it it's not a rock album like i don't think no, you can call it a I rock album uh, they they never liked to be categorized yeah so, you know they didn't they realized that they kind of looked like a rock band but that was where it ended you know but yeah. and then and yet when people would call them jazz they'd say no we're not jazz this is no. not sort of fully improvised music uh capital j jazz it, like we're of course you can tell from the music we're jazz aware yeah they're jazz soloists uh, here and there but it's you wouldn't call it jazz and they and i can tell you for sure they hated the term jazz rock oh <laughs> yeah, that even makes my skin crawl music. a bit when you say yeah. that <laughs> there's, there's a temptation um, to lump them in with the uh, yacht rock crowd um oh yeah partially because that's sort of you know in vogue right now there's spotify channels to listen to just yacht rock but my guess is that they cringe even with that as well and 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 they're diverse enough that they don't always fit that yacht rock sound either no i mean they they're they're cosmetic similarities i mean there's lots of fender roads and tight well recorded you know bed tracks and and actually some of the same personnel some of the same guitar players oh, yeah. and backup yep. singers and stuff you find them on boz skaggs records or or toto or uh doobie brothers or, or whatever but uh, yeah I, I have the feeling that uh, labeling Steely Dan is a good way for them to throw them out of the, out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, last night I was spinning uh, Billy Joel's 52nd Street, went to look on something of liner notes and saw uh, Steve Kahn uh, playing on 52nd Street, who also plays on, on this album yes. as well. Yeah, and and very contemporary with uh, with those later Steely Dan albums, that Billy Joel album, and there's some pretty jazzy flourishes on Fifty uh, Second Street oh, too. Absolutely, I think maybe uh, Hugh McCracken is on there too on guitar, uh, and that and he's definitely played on Dan stuff. Yeah, as well. yeah. You mentioned the 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 height of piano being cool, and uh, <laughs> with, <laughs> with you know going through the seventies. Um, I wanted to switch over for a second. You you talked about uh, Wayne Shorter, and I'd love for a moment to talk about that title track, Asia, because when I first heard it, I was kind of like, okay, this is, I mean, it's an eight-minute track and, and is so diverse. I didn't know what to do with it. The more I listened to it, the more it's, it's emerged as one of my favorites on the album. But um, uh, the thing that jumped out to me the most is uh, Steve Gadd's drumming on that track is phenomenal and... He tucks it away. Wayne Shorter has a sax solo, which again was kind of the album. The I think the record was like, what are you doing with all these different guys? You've got Wayne Shorter. Steve Gadd has these incredible fills at kind of the last portion of the song, but he starts doing that in the sax solo and does like a tease of it. And then at the end, they have these breaks where he does these fills. But a lot of times in jazz, capital J jazz, you have yes. a drum a drum solo, everybody else backs out. You know, right. the bass stays and then the bass drops out and the drummer does their thing. That's not the case here when everybody stays in with these sharp syncopated shots 
and Steve Drum, Steve Gadd is filling in the space with the uh, with the fills, which are just like not totally jazz, but very much a jazz style of of playing there. Yeah, fully improvised for sure. And oh wow, and it is it's that kind of uh, thing that rather than just sort of take the guy off the leash and say beat up the drums for a while, it's, it's got this regimented, as you said, syncopated kind of accents to to play around and. The, the solo, it's actually sort of a two-part solo in the middle of the tune where there's full-on uh, drums and tenor sax blowing at the same time is also very much an exception. It's, an, it's sort of an exception for jazz, but it certainly is for what you would would have thought of at the time as a pop mm-hmm. record yeah. to have you know guys of that stature just uh, sort of blowing their brains out on on track number two on a big platinum album yeah. doesn't seem possible <laughs> no. now they had never worked with wayne shorter before that record and um fagan said to me that a lot of times they'd be working with people who were 10 20 years older than they were right and they would be quite intimidated and fortunately for them their their uh, producer gary katz who's a hell of a nice guy and uh also had worked with a lot of these guys in la and in new york was not intimidated by them, knew them all, had hung out with them, drank with them, gambled with them, whatever. And uh, uh, so, you know, they'd come in and, and they could sort of relate to Gary. And then as Fagan said, uh, after they came in and we were sort of scared of them, if the record became a hit, then they really liked us. After that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the things that impressed me about Wayne Shorter, who by that point was, you know, on the list of maybe the, half dozen greatest living jazz musicians on the planet. He came in, according to Fagan, and uh, sort of blew through that middle section of Asia a bunch of times, wasn't feeling comfortable, Hmm. and said, just give me a minute. And so he went over to the, the piano with a pencil and paper and started, you know, looking at the chart and kind of, I can only imagine deciding what chord scales to use on what chord and when it's loud and when it's soft who knows what he was looking at but he was trying to sort of get the lay of the land so he could really bring his a-game to it and and uh spent like a half an hour sort of doing his homework at the piano like a like a mere mortal (laughs) which you know you talked about ego like if you're wayne shorter and you're walking in and you're working with these guys uh that are younger than you and Mm -hmm. aren't really jazzers and as they're watching you, you sit down and admit, okay, I'm, I'm not quite there with this yet, and sit down and, right. and get out the pencil and really uh, admit that it takes more than uh, sort of God-given talent and inspiration. It, it actually takes a bit of grunt work to get through a tricky tune like that, even if yeah. you're range shorter. You know, I was impressed by that story. I, I like the fact that you know, because everybody thinks that that people like Miles Davis and Wayne Shorter just got beamed to earth, you know, and, yep. and didn't have to practice and listen and jam eight hours a day, seven days a week to get to where they are. But they really did. They did. That's just how it is. So that's a great little tidbit from that. And uh, is there one key change in that solo or two? I, there's at least one. Oh, well, I think. Uh, depending on what you define as a key change, there are, uh, <laughs> let's see, um, a lot of, let's maybe not call them keys, but temporary, temporary um, tonal centers that move around. <laughs> so yeah. it's not like, yeah. hey, Wayne, let's play a blues. It's like, here's this bizarre form 
Yeah, yeah. So it takes some, definitely takes some, uh, some extra thought. Wow. I, I think uh, above, uh, between Ben and I, above our uh, understanding of, of how music works. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I told uh, the, the uh, Continuum people was, uh, I'm not going to be able to write a book about Steely Dan without getting into some yeah. technical stuff, oh, because yeah. it, it's just not possible to fully talk about their music without, you know, mentioning a chord symbol or or a time signature here and there because yeah. it's part of, part of what they do it's not it's not the rolling stones it's it's tricky on paper yeah yeah uh i was blown away by the by the complexity uh track by track on this album like start to finish they're they're not they're not simple tracks they're not easy tracks uh they're still accessible though is one thing like i'm not i'm i'm not a musician i'm I'm very amateur level musician. Uh, I understand some things, but I was listening going, holy moly, there's a lot of things happening here, but I can still get into this. And I think a lot of people can. And with selling over 2 million albums, obviously the general public can too. So mm-hmm. that's really impressive in and of itself. Mike, I think this album has the answer uh, to why you're not more of a musician. Uh, you started to play the saxophone um, in uh, you know middle school years, and this album instructs you that if you learn to work the saxophone, you got to drink scotch whiskey all night long, and uh, you didn't do that as a 12 or 13-year-old, so that, no, that's probably I, why you're not uh, a better player today. <laughs> I think you're right, Ben. Thankfully, I didn't die behind the wheel either, so uh, that's we're, we're, we're good. Yeah, that's this why you're still here today. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's good. Good, po- good point, though. Good observation. <laughs> But there's something uh, in my mind kind of gnawing at me, um, and it has to do with that conversation in the car, Mike, about like, do I know anything by Steely Dan? And wondering how this uh, duo, essentially, who are so prolific and so talented, kind of becomes lost in the shuffle. And uh, all of this like mind work led me to uh, an article about the 2000 Grammys, the year 2000. Um, we were we were nearing the end of high school, so we were sort of in the prime of our musical influential kind of era. Um, you know, really just uh, you know buying stacks of CDs at a time with all of our summer earnings and uh, and just having music on all the time. At that Grammys, um, the Steely Dan album Two Against Nature" won for Album of the Year. Um, it was also a year when the Marshall Mathers LP and Radiohead's Kid A were, were up in the same category. And my wow. my mind probably at that time, w- even though I didn't really swear, would have dropped an expletive like who the hell decided to have this album beat out these things that are clearly far more important um, in the world. Uh, and I'm wondering how much, you know, whether that that planted a seed in a certain generation of, of people like Steely Dan stole something from us that there's this really <laughs> there's this groundbreaking music happening and we're handing an album of the year award to to two guys whose best days were behind them now I know that that uh, you know as a teenager I wouldn't have even taken the time there wasn't streaming really at that time I wouldn't have been able to go and and listen to two against nature without buying it at the store so I probably you know and even looking back now I don't think I've ever heard a track from from two against nature but I wonder how much that planted a seed for me about how seriously to take these guys compared to all the other music that's out there and I, I don't know if either of you have any thoughts about 
that or that story or that particular moment in time but um it, it's been it's been sitting in my head for for a little while <laughs> i i've definitely uh spoken to uh gen xers and millennials who feel that way about about those grammys because okay. you know you're talking about uh, depending i mean for me peak radiohead is okay computer but that's pretty close to peak yeah, Radiohead, yeah. kid a yeah. And Marshall Matters and, you know, uh, who else was in the category? I think it might have been Beck. Oh, wow. It was Odelay? Pretty, maybe? pretty big album. It, I don't think it was Odelay. It might have been. Oh, what a mutation or sea change. C- okay. Right. Yeah. Sea change sounds like it might have been around 2000, right? Yeah, it might have been mutations, actually. But anyways, yeah. well, we, we anyway. Anyway, the point <laughs> is, I, I think even Steely Dan at that point would have copped to the fact that um, Two Against Nature first of all, is not their greatest or most enduring record. What it really was, was a tribute to the fact that um, even sort of at the turn of the millennium, the average voter on the Grammys was older than the age of the average music listener. <laughs> so that, you know... Really what that was, and I said this at the time, was, oh, this is a Lifetime Achievement Award for Steely Dan. This is an album of the year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, because they had actually been in the category themselves a couple of times back in the day and not one album of the year. I forget who they lost to, but, you know, they were up against things like uh, uh, Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles and things that they sort of got stampeded out of that category a couple of times. In fact, when they won for... uh, best engineering for asia i said well yeah i mean it, they deserve that but that's sort of like giving the ceiling of the sistine chapel an award for best matte finish <laughs> <laughs> you know what, what about the painting right uh, that's really good yeah. <laughs> yeah um the uh just to jump back for a second the beck album we're looking for is midnight vultures oh midnight vultures i forgot about in between yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he he went in between kind of really slow ambient stuff to like 70s cpm um yeah and i'm sure you know and every once in a while they have one of those grammy moments where the where the new guard gets up in arms against the old Mm -hmm. guard um one of them was a few years ago when uh, esperanza spaulding won best new artist and she was up against justin bieber yeah bieber yeah like a couple of mumford and sons yeah major gigantically yeah, selling artists that. and and the sort of stodgier wing of the of the grammy voters said no let's give it to this woman who's a real musician and whose sort of priorities and qualifications we understand uh-huh. better <laughs> than, than uh, a kid from stratford ontario who got famous on on the internet yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. don i've i've Another question for you, uh, compare and contrast for us, what jumped out from you or what jumped out for you on the album the most when you first heard it, you know, when you listened to it six times in a row, uh, (laughs) when you first got it to kind of where you are now or when you wrote the book, what are the differences in terms of what really excites you about the album? I know there's obviously more than one thing, but uh, how has your hearing of it changed over the years? If it has. (laughs) It has. Uh, my enthusiasm for it hasn't changed over the years, but right. certainly you hear things differently if you're if if in the meantime you get into the record business for for decades and you 
produce records and arrange records and play keyboards on records and all the rest of it, right. you have a little more insight as to how the sausage is made. <laughs> you know, it's not yep. like a magic trick. It is like it is when you hear something and you're a kid and you just think, how did this even happen? What yeah. is this? You know? Yeah. But certainly um, I was a, a bit of a sort of uh, badly funded audiophile by the the time Asia came out, you know, I had my little component stereo and my top of the line Sennheiser headphones and, and uh, would have taken it home and, and listened on, on the headphones. And uh, I know that I thought at the time, this is the best sounding record I've ever heard. You know, I can just hear every nuance of every instrument. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you listen to Peg, for example, uh, Rick Murata, the drummer, did this groove where just very slightly there there's a there's a little tap on the hi-hat here there or a little closing of the pedal on the hi-hat that on in most records back then they would have compressed that out of existence you wouldn't even be hearing those ghost notes in a drum track right but you do hear them and you hear the uh you hear someone play a chords a chord on on the fender roads and you you hear the chord when it's released you hear the mechanical sound of the the chord being released you know it's right down to that it's like you can hear the spit in the horns <laughs> certainly there's that um but i was um i had that moment of here's an artist that i i already love and this is even better. Like, I just didn't think there could be anything better than their previous album. And then right. it, it was like, okay, there's now we have to invent something above A plus now, because from a songwriting standpoint, from a performance standpoint, production, groove, arrangement, everything was just a notch better even than they had done before. And listening to it now, it, it's a mixture of having the hair on my arm stand up because it reminds me of the first time I heard the record. It's the old thing of, are you having a memory or or are you remembering the last time you remembered something? <laughs> yep, yep. I just don't think there's a weak area on it. It's, it's like their, their best set of lyrics are certainly right up there. Uh, and the hooks are great. The arrangements are great. Dynamics, groove, production, sort of every... Every box, it just ticks off for me. Yeah, I, I can totally understand that. One lyric that there's so many, there's so many great lyrics on the album, but one that jumped, kept coming back to me was, uh, they got a name for the winners in the world. I want a name when I lose. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. whoa! <laughs> like, you could dig into that for a while. <laughs> yeah, that song in particular, Deacon Blues, I mean, there's some couplets in there that are, you know, those are pull quotes for the ages. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, you were talking about Peg. Um, I love the uh, Chuck Rainey. I'm not as familiar with him. Uh, the bass work on Peg, going slipping to the kind of slapping technique in the in the chorus and in the mix, they really make that um, pop out on the forefront, but not be overbearing. Because sometimes you know the slap it hits so much harder, um, and the sound is so much brighter. If you're not careful, it kind of overpowers. But it slides in so nice, and when you have it on the headphones, it's like just. It fits. I'm surprised at how well it fits. It does. It's not overbearing, but it really gives that extra something in in the chorus. There is something I really enjoyed on it. Well, if you if you tweak to that slapping sound, you should check out. There's um, you guys might know about the uh, there was a TV series. I think it might have been on VH1 called Classic Albums or something like something okay. generic like that. And they did one episode on Asia. Okay. And they oh, had wow. Chuck Rainey on there. 
<clears throat> talking about the slapping thing. Okay. From what he indicates in that special, Steely Dan sort of didn't love the slapping thing. Okay. It, it thought it was maybe a little trendy at the time to be slapping the bass. And so it's very funny. He's, he's got a great sense of humor. He said, so I just kind of turned around about 45 degrees so they couldn't actually see my right hand. <laughs> I slapping a bit. And then after a couple of takes, they were loving it. And I just didn't say anything. Right. And they ended up with these final bass tracks that had, it was a combination of picked That's and, and really slapping. Funny. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Rainey, you said uh, you didn't know him that well. He's, he, um, in those days, was he and Bernard Purdy, the drummer, were sort of a known duo for if you wanted the best groove in the universe on your record, you got those two guys. I mean, um, for example, it's them on Aretha Franklin, Rocksteady. Hmm. Okay. They, they, they had a very deep discography, hmm. but, but I love the fact that he, that he kind of snuck a little slap onto a Steely Dan record. Cause I think <laughs> that may be the only time that the thumb was ever used on the bass oh. <laughs> on, on a Steely Dan record. Yeah. As far as I know, that's really funny. Maybe you'll get letters about that from people even nerdier than yeah, I. Possible. <laughs> it happens from time to time. <laughs> Although of the kind of five people who listen to this podcast, usually they're pretty uh, pretty gracious. Yeah. Yeah. They're immediate family, so you can get a hold of them. Yeah, that's right. We'll get a text um, before it even gets published. <laughs> Don, one of the things you touched on earlier and I wanted to ask about is is their use of chord changes in different chords. We hear it on many different tracks. I want to say almost every track where they're using different uh, progressions and key changes like a lot, at least from my ear. So talk a little, walk us through that a bit and how they use this in this way and how that adds to the album in your perspective. Well, if you if you look back to their first couple of albums, they were the odd time still using just major and minor chords and and kind of picking from the same menu that other rock bands uh or in the case of do it again maybe latin rock bands like santana and you know, that kind of thing picking from from that kind of uh palette uh, harmonically but as they went along they got more and more excited about bringing the jazz vocabulary into into the rock idiom and seeing how far they could go with that. And I think to something you said earlier, um, Mike, you know, the reason Asia is one of their biggest albums commercially, but is full of all this uh, soloing and uh, odd harmony and modulations and all that, is that they, they just knew how to write a, a great chorus. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so even if you were a little adrift uh, at some point in the song, you were going to come back to a strong chorus. Right with a with an easily decodable melody that you could sing along with even if what was going on in the background was a bit exotic mm -hmm. by your standards right? right so by the time of asia they had sort of gone through this period in kind of middle steely dam where they they were famous for adding a ninth to to a major chord which gave it a certain sound uh now they were basically um using full-on jazz harmony 11ths and 13ths and you know ninths and sharp 11ths and altered <laughs> altered uh, tensions on dominant chords and all this stuff that really is from the jazz realm uh and they i think what they realized was uh so long as we give people kind of a soft landing and you know and we don't take too long to get to the chorus and 
the bass and the drums are something people can tap their feet to, we can put all our favorite chords in these songs. And <laughs> we're not going to get thrown in rock jail for it. <laughs> if, if you handed somebody a lead sheet of some of these songs and said, this is our new pop tune, they'd, they'd look at it and say, no, it's not. Yeah. That's not a pop tune. Yeah. But the way they produced it and the way it was so sort of groove based and uh, uh, you know lovely stacks of lead vocals on the, on the choruses and all, all the other sort of pop trimmings uh, brought people in enough that, that they were able to uh, get away with kind of harmonic murder for a while yeah that that is something that struck me and when I mentioned earlier but the, at least from my years uh, the complexity of it going wow how do they even how do they do that and you answered my question earlier. How do they do that and make it accessible for me, <laughs> a regular a regular guy who's listening to the radio who knows this much about music and jazz? How can I still get into it? And you're right that that chorus, that hook, that is something that's I'll say easy or easy to sing back or tap your toe to. Yeah, and then say decodable, decodable. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Was, I love I that. It doesn't. It doesn't take 10 lessons to get into peg yeah and with yeah. like six or seven harmonies when they say peg you just pick a key and, and sing along whatever note you can hit <laughs> <laughs> actually in that same vh1 special i'm pretty sure it's vh1 they, they have michael mcdonald on and he's talking about the day he went in they, and they were having him stack all those harmonies <laughs> up <laughs> and you know some of the notes are adjacent to each other and yeah. really tough to sing out of the clear blue sky and uh, I think he, he feels uh, retroactively quite proud that he was able to uh, <laughs> be his own backup choir awesome. on that yeah. tune. Oh. Yeah, yeah. sounds so good. And he, he comes back on uh, I Got the News. Oh, yeah. Well, there's one section of that tune that it really is all him in the lead. Okay. Oh, I might have missed yeah, that. Yeah, um, I might have missed it, that. It's the uh, Broadway Duchess. It's, that's a sort of an odd form, that song, but there's, there's one little... Uh, vocal bridge uh where it's really i'm not even sure fagan's even singing at that spot it's it's michael mcdonald and another two or three michael mcdonald's yes doing it. now yeah now i know what now i know what you're referring to i remember i forgot yeah. that he does that later later in it um that that's another thing at the beginning of that song i i didn't know the terminology but the piano or the keys rather is playing one of those dissonant chords is that the ninth on that that's a very specific um, <laughs> voicing. He sees. Yeah, uh, I guess the um, it's sort of a version of uh, for the musos out there. It, they're in the key of C, and it's a kind of a C thirteen with a sharp nine on it, and um, you you close voice it so the flat seven and, and the thirteen are right beside each other, and then it's Victor Feldman, who's an amazing piano player who had played with Miles Davis and you name it. Uh, playing piano on that track and he's just sort of taking that voicing and moving it around moving the same shape around to different spots in the wow. scale and, and wow. doing these really alien sounding piano fills again as sort of as far from a pop record in 1977 as you can imagine it does not sound like sticks or <laughs> <laughs> or anything or Billy Joel or yeah. anything else that's going on Cleveland Mac yeah any of that stuff we, yeah. one of the first albums we reviewed on this podcast was uh, Kind of Blue 
Miles Davis. Yes. And and the guest we had on, a friend of ours named Jason Crane, who's done a podcast called The Jazz Session for years and years. Um, and he's, he to- told us something really that I think both Ben and I found helpful. He said, the best way to listen to jazz is with no no password, no secret code, to just enjoy it. Because it's like wine where people want to say, well, you can't come into the club unless you know this, this, and this, and you listen to this album first, and you understand this. And he said, it's really the people who are trying to hold it lock and key, but if you just come to it without that and just enjoy it, if you like it, then you can dig into... Because me, I'm just on the... Like I say ninth, just to kind of get you to start talking, because I really don't know <laughs> what I'm talking about, but... But you can go deeper if you want, but you don't have to. I think that's intimidating for some on an album even like this um, to come in. But if you just take it at face value and just enjoy it for what it is, and then if you really like it, you can take the next step um, into what makes it tick. But a part of me doesn't even want to do that because I I just want to just enjoy it for what it is without trying to understand it. Because I'm not going to understand it entirely. And I don't have to. You don't have to, to enjoy it. That's a great no, point. No. I mean, you know, a record like kind of blue is a very popular record over the years. It never stops being popular. No. You can go onto uh, the iTunes chart right now and it'll be in the top 10 on the jazz chart. It's oh, yeah. never oh. not in the top 10. Uh, and you know, the, it's beautifully recorded. Everybody's playing great. They're not playing too outside. It swings along nicely, you know, yeah. Yeah, it bears looking into, but if you want to use it for background music, it's great for that too. Yeah. I think Ben asked a question on that to, to get there, to get to that kind of answer for us was, you know, I'm not a, a Ben's not really a jazz, jazz guy at all in terms of his ex- musical experience, listening experience said, I'm listening to this and I like it, but why is it, tell me why it's good. Tell me why I like it, you know, and that's where Jason kind of went, well, let's start back here. We don't have to do that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, we can, but we don't have to. So, so that's kind of. Yes. I thought about that a lot by listening to to this too. So, well, the uh, it reminds me of the old Frank's. I think it's a Frank Zappa quote where he said, uh, "Writing about music is like dancing about architecture." <laughs> In other words, you you can't yeah. really get to the heart of what it is that's great about music simply by talking about uh, it or writing yeah. about it. You yeah, know, there's it's it maintains its mystery. Mm-hmm. We have a Spotify playlist called SoundLogic Favorites. Every album we review, we pick two tracks. When we have a guest, we like them to pick two tracks. So, Don, to put you on the spot, if you could pick two tracks, either your favorite or ones you would want to represent this album uh, on a playlist, what tracks would you pick? Wow. Holy Sophie's choice. Yeah, that could be tough. That could be tough. (laughs) Well, I guess I think if I'm going with two, I would go with the title track because, like you said, there's there's so much in it. In my book, I, I said, you know, people always ask, what's what's that track Asia about? And I, my answer is it's about eight minutes. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. And then I think Deacon Blues, too, because uh, it's just so chock full of Steely Dan hype harmony. And as you said, the lyrics... Uh, are great boy maybe the best sax solo on on any steely dan track too yeah yeah awesome yeah perfect well we'll get ben will get those up there adam yep um one of the questions we like to ask because a lot of the albums we review are a lot older this is now 45 years um this fall since this came out how how does it fit into the relevancy of today 
uh, is it still relevant in terms of people listening or making music or has it kind of lost in this weird niche spot that in 2000 uh, kind of the old garb was going, yeah, we need to honor them. And now it's kind of gone. What would you say about that? Well, first of all, the word niche at this point, I mean, at this point in the music industry, isn't everything a niche except for about 10 people? <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless yeah. you're Bruno yeah. Mars or somebody who's, you know, right in the center of it right now, everything's kind of a niche. Yeah. yeah. You can certainly find a lot of bands, uh, including hip hop artists, who claim Steely Dan as an influence. You wow. know, they, they were they were much sampled and uh, very influential with hip hop artists. So there's that. And then you have people like uh, Mark Ronson, who's, you know, obviously one of the premier hit makers of the new century and very influential who, who considers Asia, one of his three or four core albums. Wow. You know, he, he, he sort of, you ask him when, when the peak of kind of, great pop multi-track recording happen and he'll talk about off the wall he'll talk about rumors songs in the key of life asia it's always in the that's discussion. right yeah, yeah that's right in that in this yeah. time period yeah and uh ben if you talk to your friends uh wolf pick uh <laughs> i bet there's some steely dan fans in there oh room. i bet yeah absolutely <laughs> i'm sure um, the mayor of lonely town is my favorite of those <laughs> You know that they're, yeah they're just so fun um yeah i'm i'm, yeah. I'm, I'm impressed so melodic and they're they're great players they did a yeah. uh sold out show of madison square garden which i i didn't know enough people knew them to to sell out madison square garden but their concert footage is one guy with a handheld camera on the stage just moving around them while they while they play and i thought i've never right. seen a concert filmed that way where it's not from audience perspective but moving throughout the band right it's, it's, it's just some dude they went to high school yeah, with filming yeah, exactly yeah yep. but again that's to your point about niche yeah. well what is niche i yeah, mean you yeah. would think that those guys who've never had a radio hit would be a niche artist and yet there they yeah. are selling yeah. out a basketball right. arena yeah and that's another uh, another great thing about having you here don and and experts on this because i was really wrestling with that question like well i don't know if i can even answer it because I need to know more about who, who has been influenced by this. And that's where we're, we're so glad to have your yeah. expertise yeah. on that. Because as soon as you mention those people, I'm going, oh yeah. Like even, uh, when we listen to a guy, Ben, like, uh, Kendrick Lamar, who's, yeah. you know, just pulling all these different influence into, into this evolution of, of hip hop that he's releasing on his, on his albums, which sounds right. so different. Have you hit Kendrick yet in your, uh, 60 or so choices? Yeah. So this, so this, version we're we're doing is the 2020 reboot of the yes. list we started in early 2019 with the the 2012 version and then yep. got about 60 albums in and then rolling stone one august morning uh tuesday morning said guess what we got a new list and ben and i texted each other in panic what do we do <laughs> we're, we're we're 60 albums in we decided to just start over but um to pimp a butterfly comes in at number 19 on this list like yeah. in you know in the top 20 which was just right. uh, and there's way more representation on this version from uh you know artists of color women hip-hop you know we we're now 60 albums in and what we've yeah. done about a dozen hip-hop albums ben and it took us till i think you're into the mid 40s on the previous version before you hit the first a single yeah hip-hop album yeah. 
Um, so, so right. there's a huge well, yeah, shift. That's, that's a major correction. And they, to their credit, they must've yes. realized yeah. that they had to do that. And, you know, they, they were very rock centric for a long yeah. time. Oh, yeah. magazine. So you would have thought that every good record was written by Lennon McCartney, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, or the Rolling yep. Stones. Yep. We, yeah, we, and we talked to, to someone who kind of grew up with that album was very passionate about that album and, and other uh, albums around that kind of era, uh, which was a big help for us, but really opened my eyes to not only that, because we grew up with, with hip hop, but it was from the nineties mm-hmm. and then yes. we listened to it because it was popular. And then as we got older, like, I don't listen to the new stuff because it's not my genre. So when I heard that, I was like, Oh, is this what hip hop sounds like now? This is very different than what, and then, and then just to hear him, uh, and hear the music and that thread of the samples from jazz and blues and funk that were very prominent in the late eighties and early nineties in hip hop that's carried through. And they're still pulling, uh, from all that, uh, to make, yeah. the, to make the hip hop now. And I could yeah. see that even, even in some of this we're listening to. So for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And then the last, the last question we have, and this is a tough one, but we, we go, okay, this is number 63 on the list on the previous versions. It was always one, 145. So it's jumped up about 80 mm-hmm. spots. Uh, so how do you feel about that, Don? Obviously you're a huge fan. You'd probably want it higher, but in terms of kind of where it fits in the zeitgeist of rock and hip hop and all this, how does 63 feel to you? Is it, does it make sense or should it be higher or lower? What do you think? Kind of a tough one. If you're not reading this list every day, like we are, <laughs> I have to draw a distinction between my own taste where Asia is never out of the top three, right? <laughs> on my personal list, but, but you know, Rolling Stone that's trying to cover 60 years of music or something now and trying to represent every region and uh, gender and genre and all the rest of it. I mean, it's tough. I was just encouraged to see that it, that it went up 60 spots or 80 spots or whatever it was. Cause I, I think what it means is that's a record that's going to loom larger and larger as it goes Mm. along rather than smaller. Just, you just mentioned to pimp a butterfly that record will never go away. That will be, wow. that'll be a benchmark album, whether we're talking five years from now or 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. Wow. If Asia turns out to be sort of the one um, Steely Dan legacy album that ends up sort of in the public, public uh, consciousness in decades to come, uh, I don't think they'd be unhappy with that. <laughs> I, think they, I think they like that statement. I think they got all their good stuff into that record and they would feel okay about that. I like what you said there about, you know, that it's continued to be talked about. Um, I was just listening to a recent episode of, of Andrew Hickey's podcast, uh, uh, History of Rock Music in 500 Songs, and he happened to be talking about the song God Only Knows, uh, the great Brian Wilson song, and referenced that it's from Pet Sounds, which is um, often on critics' list of the greatest albums of all time, and then proceeded to say how much of a nonsense game it is to try and rank music as if it's <laughs> as if it's precise enough to to be ranked. Um, but I think this idea of like the the things that continue to have traction through the years are the things we want to be talking about. That's really, I think, yep. what what relevancy is about, and why something deserves to be on a flawed ranking like this. Um, and <laughs> and so I like I like that, and I, I think that helps me justify its place here, and uh, and perhaps you know 
as as foolish as this task is that Mike and I continue to wrestle with ranking, um, it, it helps us make sense of some of these things too. Yeah. And, you know, in classical music, they talk about the canon, Yeah, you know, the stuff that endures uh, beyond the century that it was composed yep. in. And, and really the criteria for that, the criterion for that is what you just said. Like, are people still talking about it? Are critics, other musicians? Is it touching us at a deeper level? Like Jason's comment about jazz. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So God only knows. I don't think God only knows was even considered, um, one of the key tracks on pet songs when it came out and look at it now. Yeah. I mean, you know, you uh, do a poll among songwriters of, of what the greatest song ever written is. You would always find God only knows in the top yeah. 10. Yeah. Uh, the proof is in the, uh, in the sort of uh, legacy length discussion that goes on yeah. about something. Yeah. yeah, for sure. That gets us. Now we talked about other albums uh, from Seely Dan. We always like to touch on uh, at the end, are we going to talk about them anymore on the 500 list? There's one more, Can't Buy a Thrill, we talked about. Their debut album from 72 is uh, ranked at number 168. That's up from 240, uh, so that's also bumped up. However, uh, Pretzel Logic was on the previous version at 386, but isn't on this list at all. So they have uh, two albums went up, but one of them disappeared. So <laughs> I guess we'll... Uh, <laughs> There's a compromise there. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, of course, I love that record too, Pretzel Logic. But I, I think that if you're picking the most influential or enduring albums of theirs, it doesn't. It's not in, in the the top half. Right. I think um, it was probably on the Rolling Stone list originally because it was a good seller and because it had their uh, statistically anyway their their biggest hit on it, which was Ricky Don't Lose That Number. Yep. Well, Don, we want to thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here, to hear your your memories and your insights about this album and, and music in general has been awesome. Before we part ways, is there anything that you would like to, that you're working on now that you'd like to direct our listeners to? Well, um, first of all, go read my Asia book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I just finished mixing the new uh, Monkey House album. You wouldn't be surprised to, to find that... Um, there's a sort of an audible uh, influence from from jazz and funk and Steely Dan and stuff like that in there. And in this case, uh, I have um, Mike Lenhart, the trumpet player, who's been in the live version of Steely Dan now for must be close to two decades, playing wow. a trumpet solo on my record. And wow. uh, also Drew Zing, who was their guitar player and musical director, um, would have been in the 90s, I guess. Uh, is also taking a couple of guitar solos on on the new monkey awesome. house so that'll be out this spring cool. that's uh my latest musical venture thanks for having me guys oh, pleasure. Our, our pleasure don we thank you so much and uh go check out don don stuff and uh and monkey house and all that really awesome stuff and also um classic album sundays you can go and check out don's top five albums of all time we're we're getting we're getting out of time here right now but we encourage you to go check that out um and once again thank you so much for this time uh ben what have we got coming up next week 
when uh, we talk about another album from this list. Yeah, we're, we're taking a bit of a genre pivot. Uh, number 64 is Stankonia by Outkast. Uh, so we'll have to get out of the, get off the yacht, the yacht rock and, uh, and get some, some Georgia <laughs> hip hop going here. Uh, very quick. Yeah. Get off, get off the yacht, get on the dance That's floor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, until next time, uh, thank you, Don. Thank you, Ben. Uh, thanks for this time together. And at home, thank you for listening. We hope you continue to be well, that you take care of yourselves and those around you. And of course, that you join us next time right here on the Sound Logic Podcast. Thanks, everyone. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our Sound Logic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.